I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She, a podcast where women who are leaders in their industries, companies, and most importantly, their lives, share inspiring stories about obstacles they've overcome. 40 years of working in a male-dominated industry has prepared me for the task of interviewing these courageous, successful women and to share stories and insights of my own along the way. Listen up, future leaders. This is Leading She. I wrote a business plan and I decided that I could help turn around the company. But I made a fatal error, and that was that I did not bring along the president of the company. And when I presented it to our uh, board and our team, everyone was excited about it but him. On Leading She today, my guest is Gay Gaddis. Welcome, Gay, to Leading She. Uh, Thank you, Susan. Great to be here. Great to have you here. I can't wait to dive in. Gay Gaddis is the founder of T3, an advertising agency that she grew into the largest women-owned independent agency in the U.S. under her leadership for over 30 years. Today, Gay serves on boards and does leadership training and is an artist. She wrote a best-selling book, Cowgirl Power, How to Kick Ass in Business and Life, in which she shares insights about how to develop personal power and lead like a fearless cowgirl. Gay's insights are rooted in the spirited strength of the real cowgirl heroines of the 20s and 30s, who were gutsy risk-takers in everything they did. In cowgirl power, these cowgirls are celebrated as a metaphor for the power we all have to achieve far more than we think. Gay is a speaker about women's leadership, company culture, and entrepreneurship. She currently serves as CEO of Gay Gaddis LLC, empowering the next generation of business leaders through a women's development program she founded and teaches at the McComb School of Business at University of Texas entitled Women Who Mean Business. She has won numerous awards, including being the 11th female and only fine arts graduate inducted into the McComb School of Business Hall of Fame at the University of Texas, Fast Company's Top 25 Business Builders, and Inc. Magazine's Top 10 Entrepreneurs of the Year. And most recently, she was recognized with the University of Texas Highest Honor, a Distinguished Alumnus Award. She has been a regular contributor to Forbes and Fortune magazines. Gay was the first female chairman of the Texas Business Leadership Council and is former chairman of the Committee of C200, a top women's business organization. She was also a media past board member for Monotype Imaging Holdings, Inc., and serves on the Dean's Advisory Council to the University of Texas Macomb School of Business and is advisor for both the College of Fine Arts and the Moody College of Communication. Gaddis is mother of three, and she and her husband, Lee, live and own the historic Double Heart Ranch in the Texas Hill Country, home of Gay's private art studio and gallery, which we'll talk about, As an artist, her bold and vibrant paintings have been shown in several prestigious galleries around the country, including the gallery at Fossil Ridge and New York City, earning her a top distinction by Texas Monthly Magazine as one of the top 10 artists to collect now. So, Gay, welcome again uh, to Leading She. Yes, thank you, Susan. That was a lengthy intro, but I appreciate all the kudos. (laughs) There's a lot there. It's just, I just couldn't leave anything out. Yeah. <laughs> well, wow. I read the book. It, it is, it is really one of the best books I have read about women in business. You have so many really good ideas and insights in there that uh, I've recommended it to my uh, mentee and uh, as a must read. And uh, it's just really good. Thank you so much. It's it's all from the heart and from the experience, <laughs> real world experience. And I wrote it myself, by the way. Yeah. And I always tell people that because a lot of business books are written by ghostwriters or other people write it for the author. But uh, I decided that I like to write, I can write. And so I wrote every word of it myself. And so it's really my voice. Mm. I wondered about that. It's so well written, and I'm a writer too. Uh, it's so well written that I thought, oh, I wonder if she had someone help her with this. But yeah, it's it's so easy. It's easy to read. Um, it took me longer than I thought to read it, uh, 
but it's excellent. It's really well written. Um, so we're going to dive into a number of quotes from the book and themes uh, that I think our listeners will love. There are many, many themes in there, and some of them we've addressed a few times in the podcast, but some of them we've not addressed as much, and those are probably the things I'm going to focus on. Well, you started your company in 1989, and you named it T3 for the think tank, TTT, and you say you didn't want to start an advertising agency as much as you wanted to start a a think tank. Uh, Talk about the company, why you started it, and, uh, you know, talk about the success of it. Well, for any of you who remember, (laughs) uh, the late 80s was a, a very difficult time in our country, and we were in a deep, deep recession. Uh, Texas was particularly hit during this, and the real estate market completely crashed, and, uh, you know, the savings and loans failed. It was a very, very difficult time, and so uh, I was working for another advertising agency at the time, and we were losing business right and left, so I wrote a business plan. And I decided that I could help turn around the company. But I made a fatal error, and that was that I did not bring along the president of the company. And when I presented it to our uh, board and our team, everyone was excited about it but him. And so he came marching into my office after my presentation and said, I'm not going to support your plan. So I was absolutely devastated. I, I really was. I was, had put my heart and soul in it. I knew it was going to work. And so I marched back down to his office a few hours later and said, I quit. because. And I didn't even know what I was going to do, Susan. I had not set up anything to start an agency. But I just knew in my heart that I had to go do this. And so I left, uh, incorporated the little company, and had three clients, and off we went. And yes, it was not set up to be a typical ad agency, because I thought all we need now in a recession is another little ad agency. And so uh, it was really more about solving marketing issues and problems, putting together interesting outside people to consult, and creating things that maybe weren't ads. And so we did all kinds of interesting and unique programs and marketing strategies. And but yes, we did create wonderful ads too. But uh, that was the beginning of it in 1989. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I mean, you you had ideas. You thought you could do things better. I mean, that's why we start companies. That's why I started my company. Um, and but you know, I don't know about you. I didn't know what I was in for. Susan, I failed to mention that all I had to my name was my $16,000 IRA account. So I went and cashed it yeah. in. And that's how I started the company. That's all the money I had to start the agency. And interestingly enough, though, we worked really hard and I was able to put my $16,000 back in within the three-month window and not have a penalty. <laughs> so we, we made yeah. it. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah, you did. I mean, you started it really from from literally nothing. Um, it looks like the company was bought or merged with a larger, larger firm. That happened only three years ago. Uh, I ran it. It was an okay. independent agency for over 30 years. And then at the end of 2019, yes. I decided to sell the company to another firm that was more of a research marketing research firm. And so they brought T3M as one of their, um, agencies that they were building into a big portfolio. So that's when I left the company was mm-hmm. at the end of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. But you ran it for and grew it for 30 years and really made a name for yourself. I had a great reputation. So let's talk about the book. I just, uh, I read it. I loved it. Um, again, the name is cowgirl power, how to kick ass and business and life. I love the title. Um, and we're going to recommend it to our listeners and put it on our website, uh, leading So there are so many parallels to really modern day women business leaders and the gutsy cowgirls of earlier days. I did not think of myself as a cowgirl, uh, but uh, you gave so many examples. And I said to myself, I think I'm a cowgirl, you know, (laughs) so you are about the cowgirl metaphor. Yeah, I, I you read my bio. I think I'm a cowgirl, you know. Yeah, and so are. talk about that metaphor of a, a cowgirl and uh, and how you. I I was a little skeptical when I started reading it, and then I saw all the parallels uh, with cowgirls and why you wrote the book. And we're going to start talking about some quotes. Yeah, it was a little risky naming it Cowgirl Power because obviously it's a business book, 
But it also does draw on some amazing women that I am totally fascinated with. And they are the original cowgirls of the Wild West shows and rodeos that performed in the late 1800s and early 1900s. They did amazing stunts. I mean, they were truly the very first female international superstars from the United States. They traveled all over the world. They performed these amazing stunts and tricks. And uh, Annie Oakley, of course, was quite well known. And she was the best sharpshooter really in the world, to be honest. I mean, very few people could rival Mm -hmm. her. And so these women, uh, again, competed against men. They had to be very creative and innovative and how they did that in those days with very little help and support is just truly amazing. But they were also business people because not only were they just good at their craft or what they did, but they had to manage their own businesses and, and being a show person and, you know, being in these rodeos and doing all these things, you had to manage your own money. And so they, they, built a career. They built businesses. And some, some of them did really more than just that. that. They uh, started big, giant rodeo programs and all kinds of interesting uh, endeavors. But mm-hmm. I was fascinated yeah. with these women. Yeah. And I put them in little vignettes in the beginning of each chapter to encourage all of us to say, wow, if they could do it, so can we. So can we. Yeah, I love one of your quotes. You say, your ranch, Double Heart Ranch, stands for a legacy of courageous cowgirls who won't take any guff who face down risk on a daily basis, know how to walk the walk, take care of business, and most importantly, how to survive no matter how great the obstacle or how great the challenge is. And that says it all right there. Yeah. Um, I love the writing about your parents. Um, You lost your father, Gene, uh, when you were 13, so early in your life, but he was a big influence on you. Your mother, Dottie Warren, uh, you say was a cowgirl. Uh, and I thought it was interesting uh, that she, you know, I'd like to, to talk about your parents, but she lost her right arm to, to cancer when she was young, right? I mean, and then, but she never, never stopped her. She didn't complain. And they both seem to be characters in their own right and influenced you in a big way. Just uh, talk about your childhood and your parents. Yeah, they were amazing people. And, you know, of course, they are the from the generation that lived through the Great Depression as young people. And they also um, had to be... Uh, part of the World War II effort. My dad served in both the Navy and the Army uh, during that time. And so they had a lot of hardships, you know, and a lot of huge, huge obstacles to overcome. But then, you know, somehow they did it. And both of them went to college. They were very outstanding at their schools and uh, really were just very, very kind, giving people. And, you know, we ended up in this small Mm. town. Uh, My mother never lived in a small town. And when they first moved there, she thought she'd gone to hell, basically. But uh, she ended up loving it. And (laughs) it was a very tiny town, less than 10,000 people. And a little town named Liberty, Liberty, Texas. Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's where I grew up. And the values and the transparency of life uh, the type of, you talk about characters. My dad always said that Liberty had more characters per square inch than any place on the planet. And we did. Uh, and I learned from these people and we laughed and we had sorrows and we had all the, you know, trials and tribulations of life. But as you said, my father died a very untimely death uh, when I was 13. And the little town surrounded us with love, compassion, understanding, and kept us close to them. And I had wonderful godparents that were like grandparents that uh, had far- had a farm, and I grew up on that farm, too. I started riding horses with my godfather when I was about five years old. And so I grew mm-hmm. up around horses and cowgirls and cowboys and people really working. I mean, it wasn't just show. It was the real thing. So living in that little town was a big part of me. And my mother was an incredible, incredible person. Um, She did lose her arm to cancer. And in the times that she lost her arm, there was no, really nothing they could do for her except to amputate. There was no chemo, no no radiation. There was no other treatments available. So they, you know, removed her arm and said, well, good luck, basically. And somehow she survived to be almost 86 years old when she passed away a few years ago. And she was just a beacon of hope to almost everyone that she met and touched, and she would just light mm-hmm. up your day and your life and made you feel so wonderful when you were with her. Um, she worked so hard her whole life and um, just a real example to so many people. She was a school teacher and she taught 
thousands of people to read and people followed her all their lives. She heard from her students and, you know, she was just one of these people that um, doesn't come along very often. And I was very fortunate to have her as my mom. Yeah. And my dad was hilarious, too. I mean, he was very funny. He had a great sense of humor <laughs> and left us with all these funny sayings, as we would say. And I have them all written down, and I use them a, a good bit myself. But he taught me a lot through that. But you talk about a giving person, uh, you know, literally the shirt off his hmm. back type of guy. Yeah. Sounds like they each had their own, you know, put their thumbprint on you uh, in in terms of who you are today. I I see both of them in your writing and the influence they have on you. And my parents were the same way. They each had a different influence on me and my success. And um, it's funny how you look back and you can see it. Uh, But yeah, that's great. Great. uh, Very unique uh, set of parents you had there. Um, Let's dive into some of the themes from the book. um, One of the things you say, and I heard you speak in in one of the videos, uh, that you talk about logic not overruling our gut instinct and that it is a mistake. And I would agree with you here, but talk about logic overruling gut. Well, interestingly enough, I'm a very logical person. Uh, and I really am. It's If you take the Myers-Briggs, I'm, I'm one of these people who leans on logic and, and can be pretty straightforward and straight cut on everything. But on the other hand, I have learned through my entire life that there's something inside you that's your moral compass and it lives in you. And it's, I call it your gut. And your gut tells you when things are right or wrong. Uh, and if you don't listen to it, you're going to make mistakes. And the times that I can look back on where I made some mistakes is when I let logic overrule my internal compass and didn't listen to my gut and darn it, you know, then I'd have to go correct all that because um, I knew in my heart of hearts, as we would say, that I was probably not making the right decision or making the right move, but I did it anyway because it looked right on paper or it looked, it sounded right. You know, everything added up and you run your numbers and you run everything. Yeah, that's the way to go. But then somehow you'd say, hmm, not right. And even like when I started my company, if I had just run that as a purely logical play, I wouldn't have done it. But my gut said, you got to do this. Now is the time. So, you know, if we don't take those risks and listen to our gut, we're going to miss out on the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. Uh, for the women and men listening. Um, one of my favorite themes you talk about is personal power. And you you write about it in a way that I don't think I've read before. We talk about what organizations can do to put more women in the C-suite, but part of that responsibility is the uh, to the woman herself. And you say, uh, quote, it comes from within yourself. It comes from inspiration, charisma, leadership. It comes from friendship, teamwork, an open heart, and an abundance of goodwill. It comes from humor, character, and grit. There's a lot in there. And then you say cowgirl power is about taking responsibility for yourself and finding the personal power that is within you. And uh, talk about personal power in women and how they can use it to succeed. We all have it. It's it's this thing, whatever we want to call it inside us. And we have to tap on it and listen to it because we all do have incredible power inside us to accomplish anything. And the fortunate thing we talk about my parents is that they believed that I could do anything I wanted to do. And I was never told, okay, you shouldn't do that because you'll never do it. It was like, you know, go for it, do it. Uh, And so I developed power Mm -hmm. by having small successes along the way. And we all had those. And you have to go back and think about the times, oh, I was successful at that. I did do that well. And you start to build up this power and confidence inside you that you can do things. And, you know, a lot of times the word power has a negative connotation where you think of top-down autocratic power, I will have power over you. That's not the kind of power I'm talking about. It is this power that lives inside you and that guides you and actually enables you to do the things that you really want to get done. And, and then you are powerful <laughs> based on just the actual actions that you've taken. Yeah. Good writing about uh, personal power. Let's talk about cowgirls embracing criticism. Um, and I, I believe this, I think you, you talk about men having trouble telling women being really honest and open with them about what they need to hear. And uh, you say, if you can see yourself objectively, 
you can take control of yourself and methodically build your own power. So we need that criticism, don't we? Uh, we need to hear it. Absolutely. Uh, and I fear now uh, that especially with some of the issues with men and women in the workplace, that we will get less feedback from our male counterparts. And I've already heard it from men mm-hmm. that I'd just rather not go there. You know, why even take a risk to try to explain to somebody how I really feel like they could do something better when they may be taken the wrong way? So we have to ask for it. We have to be open to criticism. And yeah. one of the interesting things that I realized a few years ago is that I do have a degree in fine arts. I'm an art major, not a business major, although I did go back to school to take business courses. But uh One of the things that happens as a fine arts major is that your work is critiqued on a regular basis. So you do a painting or you do some drawings or you do whatever project that the professor gives you and the entire class may even critique you or at least a professor does in front of everyone. And so I learned from that that guess what? That's not a bad thing. Because occasionally I would disagree, but usually I would say, well, you know what? I could have made it better by doing that or this or thought about it from that point of view. And so I have been able to take criticism along the way, maybe easier than some folks, because, you know, I just had it in school (laughs) and that was the way we were taught. And so we get we learn from the critiques that we get. And I will say sometimes Mm -hmm. people are a little rude or snarky, and we just have to take that with a grain of salt. But most of the time, if you are listening to people who care about you and want you to improve, they're giving you good advice. And so take that and Mm -hmm. work with it. Uh, Do not be afraid of it. And like I said, we have to ask for it sometimes. You have to go up and say, well, how could I have Mm -hmm. done that better? People are usually really willing to help you if you will ask them. Yeah, it's it's valuable, and uh, we have to encourage them to to speak honestly with us about where we need to work on things. Uh, when I was early in my career, I was, um, you know, a little more verbal than maybe I should have been. I should have used a little more kindness with people, and I heard that <laughs> feedback. And I and uh, y- you know, I needed to continue to what we say sharpen the saw. You have to continue to sharpen the saw, and that's what entrepreneurs do. They mm-hmm. continue to look for how to make things better, how to do things better, yeah. you know. So um, really good advice. A lot of women who are on the career track, uh, and I, I found this too, and I think in your career you did too, uh, we're so ambitious. We want to succeed, and we just will not fail, and we experience burnout. Uh, what would you what would you say about burnout? How do you how would you tell women to avoid it? And uh, what, what's your experience? My thought on burnout is that we're all going to have it at some point because, especially uh, if you are what I call in backup mode. Now, backup mode means that you're not in situations that you're really hitting it on all cylinders. You're having to perform you know task or do something that's not in your wheelhouse and we have to do that sometimes sometimes you know I'm not a detailed person I'm not a patient person but well I get pushed there sometimes and when I do um, I can do it for a while but then at some point you just kind of burn out with it and if you just give yourself a quick break and for me growing up around ranches and farms and being able to be outside and just go for a walk or just get away and just have a few minutes to regroup is saves me. I mean, my life, I call it the country, but our life at the ranch has been absolutely my salvation through the years because, you know, COVID hit, I mean, way back before the recessions, all the things have happened. And I would come out here and just be among my dogs and nature and, and just let it all go, you know, and just sometimes a primal scream in the forest, so to speak. But we do wow. get burned out. And it's okay. I mean, you cannot do something over and over and over, uh, you know, when it's so hard for you and not eventually your, your brain and your body is just going to say enough. Um, so we have yeah. to take a break. And um, you, or sometimes yeah, you we have can't to talk to your friends. Yeah. You know, talk to your I call them your rough mm-hmm. riders, you know, in the book. But, you know, talk to some right. people and let them help you get through. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, we have to. We have to restore. I haven't thought about making a primal scream somewhere. I'm not sure I've got a place to do that. But uh, I dance. I meditate. I I get enough sleep, you know. And you know this as an entrepreneur. We can't be at our best and make our best decisions when we're tired and burned out, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have to. You have a responsibility to do this. That's right. So you you started a revolutionary program um, that uh, I want you to talk about. You had an experience in which uh, four of your, at that time, 24 employees got pregnant all at the same time. You're not sure quite how it happened, and it kept you up <laughs> at night. And uh, you you were wondering how you're going to do everything with everybody being, you know, those four being on maternity leave. So you started a program that was really revolutionary. I've never heard anything like it. And I guess you were, um, it was, uh, got out nationally. So talk about that. Well, it was just born out of really the think tank mentality. You know, when we would say, all right, <laughs> what do you do in a situation? How do you solve a problem or a situation? And we would always put our think tank solutions in there when we were doing marketing uh, solving for our clients. So I thought I better try this on myself. And yes, these four women were very key to my business and they were working on our largest account. And it was just awful for me to think about losing them. And I thought I would definitely lose at least two of them. Uh, and so I just said, you know what, why don't you just bring the babies here and we'll all help you take care of them. And they looked at me like I was a complete nut, you know, they said, how in the world would that ever work? I said, I don't know, but we're going to try it. And, and so they didn't want to do it. And then finally, one of them said, I'll try it because she really needed to work. She needed the, the salary. And so she said, I'll do it. And then one by one, we coaxed the rest of them into it. And so we had this thing at the office, kind of what we call the romper room. And we just let the, the little kids were there. We had bassinets and play pens and all this stuff. And they were there. And, you know, finally, we said, you know what? This is working. And my attorney at the time, though, told me I couldn't do it. And he said, you don't there's too big of a liability. You cannot have these children in your office. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, look, I mean, parents take their children to the grocery store. They take their kids everywhere. And I said, you know, this is just another place and we have insurance. So we're just going to go for it. So thank goodness through the years we had over about 112 babies go through this program. And we did come up with a a very, very robust set of rules and the parents would sign off. And we even had men participate. I have some wonderful dads who brought their daughters or brought their little boys with them. And we found a time where it was appropriate for the babies to move on and everything was documented and everything was organized. But at the beginning, it was not. And it was just kind of, let's just try it. And so it did become nationally known we called the program T3 and Under. And uh, I was on the mm-hmm. Today Show twice, on ABC Nightline, USA Today. I mean, we were just written up everywhere. But to my chagrin, to this day, not very many people have followed my footsteps on this, but it works. Mm. It, it, it created in insane type of loyalty. I mean, you couldn't match the loyalty, loyalty because to, to I've always company, said that if you right. do something for someone's child, you're endeared to them almost for the rest of their life. And so we had just, and yeah. plus it just created a culture of caring and fun and our clients knew the babies were there. And soon after that, we allowed the dogs to come. So we, we had babies and dogs running around and it was just kind of, it sounds like <laughs> chaos, but it was not. Uh, it was organized chaos and we got all of our work done, award-winning work and never missed a beat. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, you'll have to read the book uh, if you're listening, but uh, you drew the line at the goat with, with oh, the yes. fleas, I know. So. <laughs> it's uh. a funny story, but we won't go into that. <laughs> yes, read the book for the goat story. Yeah, it's in the book. It's in the book. Um, so talk about women and feeling guilty. Um, I was uh, a mother. My first child was born in 1986, and there was a lot of I just felt a lot of guilt by working full time and uh, I felt guilty for thinking about staying home. And, you know, what would you say to career women who have children um, and uh, about the guilt you have children? Well, it's real and you can't get rid of it. I mean, you know, guilt is a very dangerous thing uh, and it can really ruin our lives, to be honest. I mean, we we can feel guilty over a lot of different things, but the child situation is extremely difficult for women because, you know, we were always brought up to think we are the ones who have to do everything. You know, it's it's responsibility and you love your child and you don't want to leave them. But there's so many studies now and so much evidence that children of working moms do really well 
most of the time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I look back on my kids and they all learn so much from the situations we were in. And I I always say too in my book, and I, I lived this, that don't separate work from family. When we would get home at night to have dinner or the kids were doing their homework, I talked to them about what was going on at the office and not things that they didn't need to be worried about, but I wanted them to understand what it was like to be in business and some of the challenges and the and the glory and the wonderful things too. And so they grew up understanding why mommy wasn't there all the time. Um, and they told me sometimes they miss me and wished I had been there for things, but at the end they knew I loved them and that was the main thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I <clears throat> I agree with that. And um, I needed to work. I, I didn't, I say need as though it was financial for me, it was like, that's who I am. And that's, yeah. that's what I needed to do. You know, I needed both. No I, I need to, have, I was financially very much, well, my husband was very involved in everything I was doing and was uh, successful too. But, but <laughs> uh, you know, we, we needed my income. I had, I was making a lot of good money at one point. And so that was helped the kids get to do things that they wouldn't have done had I not been working. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You say, um, this is one of my favorite quotes, um, that you have, and it is never tolerate an asshole. (laughs) And, uh, in the spirit of Texas, uh, you say, Mm -hmm. and shoot the assholes. (laughs) Uh I never shot one of them. Uh, but you say (laughs) negative energy drains team spirit. It is a dark rain cloud that does not go away. So talk about that. And any woman out there that, uh, there, you know, there's somebody, let's say it's a guy. Okay. That a man, uh, that is, you know, he's very good at what he does, but he doesn't treat people that he's working with or maybe even clients. Well, talk about that. Yeah, unfortunately, that just happens sometimes. And, you know, we call it the rotten apple mm-hmm. and spoil the whole barrel. But uh, we allow sometimes, and that's when I said I didn't trust my gut. There were a few times I didn't trust my gut, and I allowed someone to get in the organization that looked good on paper, had all the right credentials, but I knew something was not right. And it's almost impossible, I think, to rehabilitate someone like that. I mean, occasionally you can. Yeah. You know, I've seen people go through training and sensitivity training and mm-hmm. actually improve. But most of the time, mm-hmm. if someone is wired up that way, um, they're just going to yeah. be not a fit and you've got to take them out as soon as possible because the longer they're there it destroys morale and it can actually hurt your business in a lot of ways and so if you Mm -hmm. have control over it and someone is really toxic to the organization do not hesitate and that's why i say shoot the assholes it's a metaphor to just say just boom just get them out do not hesitate because the longer that you let them stay, the more that it takes down the entire organization. Yeah. It affects morale and you don't always hear about it because let's say he's very good at what he does, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't treat people well. It's like, you know, Hey, he's really good. And people will leave. The morale is affected. Mm -hmm. You've got to get them out of there. Yeah, yeah, you do. And I think Um, that the problem is that a lot of people will hesitate and wait too long. And then it becomes really damaging. So I'm I'm one of those that just says, if you need to do something, just get it over with, rip off the Band-Aid and go on. Just, just move on. Right. Um, You talk about dealing with change head on. And as all entrepreneurs have, things change. And you've had some challenging, you had some challenging times during, uh, you know, running your business. And I'd like to talk about a couple of them. The first one is when you lost Dell, uh, your client, uh, the computer company, Dell, uh, they were your client for 16 years, large part of your revenue, but you lost them. But you have a really good story about that and how you recovered. Talk about Dell. Yeah, Dell was our first big account. And when we started working with them at the beginning, they were kind of a small company too. But, you know, we held hands and literally jumped into internet marketing. We were some of the first in the country to have successful big mm-hmm. online marketing programs and campaigns. And so, uh, you know, we did other things for Dell too. I mean, we did all their catalogs, $12 million a month. I mean, we had a huge, huge revenue stream from Dell. And then one day they decided that they wanted to consolidate all their agencies and they wanted me to sell my company to a large holding company that they had selected. And I said, no. And then when I said, no, they kept saying yes. And I said, no. And they said, well, then you're out. So I lost the business and it was $70 million in revenue, Susan. This was not a small 
account for us. Um, and it was <laughs> over one half. Day. I, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. terrible. And it was over half of our business. I thought I was going to just die. Honestly, it was the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told the entire team immediately what was going on. I just wanted to let them know. And everyone was crying. And it was, it was just terrible. But the interesting thing is, because we were so early with internet marketing, I was able to take that knowledge, take those skill sets and my team, and I called everyone I had ever known in every network I'd ever created and asked them to talk to us. And somehow within the end of that year, we built the business back and we're whole. I can't believe we did it. But we were able to sell our way out of yeah, that. Yeah, I'm getting but, chills. Yeah. I oh, love I mean, the story. I'm telling you, yeah. my hair turned white in two weeks, and that's why I'm blonde now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm serious. It was just, it was a shocking, horrible it. experience. And, you know, you talk yeah. about being in backup mode. I, you know, I didn't know what we were going to do, but we survived it. And, I mean, there's a lot of other decisions that had to be made. But the main thing was that we were able yeah. to keep most of the staff and sell, 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 mm-hmm. sell, sell until we replaced the business. And we actually picked up some major, wonderful accounts. So it was, in the end, yeah. it was a good thing because it diversified my portfolio of accounts and business. And yes. it was just a, a better thing in the long run. But at the time, it was devastating. Mm-hmm. Really, truly yeah, devastating. Yeah, yeah, you, you did it the hard way. I mean, it's kind of like you, you knew that they represented a lot of your a lot of your business and you didn't you wanted to diversify and this sort of <laughs> forced you to do it. But you said in the book, quote, I learned to access my true grit when we lost our largest client, which is great. And then it looks like you, you got on a plane and you started calling, tapped into your network. And picked up Microsoft, UPS, Chase Bank, Universal, some pretty big accounts to replace that revenue. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, it was just amazing accounts. But to go back one more time, this is in an era where everyone was saying we're going to have to start diverting some of our dollars from television and print and radio and some of the other traditional mediums into online marketing. And so we were the ones who had success stories and we could prove it that we knew how to do it because of our Dell experience. So in one way, Dell gave me the best experience I could have ever had, but it was painful. But in the long haul, we were able to provide services and uh, techniques that many agencies had not perfected yet. And so we were standing there, you know, with our hands open and said, we can do it. Yeah. Yeah, you did it. Um, the second challenging time, uh, and I know there are plenty of other times, but it, it was 2009. And I was in commercial real estate at the time. I had my company and uh, it was the Great Recession, as we know. Um, and the economy took a huge turn downward and it was big. It was massive. And companies were cutting budgets and advertising and marketing were among the first to go and talk about that time. It, it really just, I think, sucker punched us all. Yeah, everyone was in the same boat, but you still were in that boat. And so I decided that yeah. we're, we were just going to have to do anything we could to survive. Uh, you're right. I mean, it was interesting because the phone calls I started getting in early January 2009 terrible. I mean, I didn't want to pick up the phone. Clients were calling every day saying, oh my gosh, you know, we just got our budgets cut by 30%. Uh, I mean, I have to lay off five people today. I mean, everybody was just, just scrambling to survive. And so the good thing is we did not lose accounts. We just lost budget. And so I knew I had to figure out, and our clients were saying, how can you help us through this? We still have to get everything done, but we only have half the budget we did last year. And so we were very creative, and we figured out ways to help them get through this. And I had to do something I wish I never had had to do, but I had to ask everyone in, the co- in my company to take a salary cut. And it was not a, mm. I'm not sure it was the best decision, but it saved jobs. And so we got through that yes. whole time without laying off a lot of people. We had to lay off some, but we got through it without huge layoffs, but everyone took a, a hit, you know? And then the nicest yeah. thing in the world is somehow, once again, we sold our way through it and got through it. And I was able at year end to bonus back to every employee what they had lost in their cut. And so we made it good. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, that was, again, just the hard work and tenacity of everyone on the team. And we 
made it through, mm-hmm. but it was not pretty. <laughs> it really wasn't pretty. No, it was just no, every it day was a, was a struggle. It was a rough time. Very rough. It's a rough time. We just didn't see when it was going to stop, you know, but uh, yeah. we made it through. Yeah, that's what we do with it. Yeah. Grit. You talk about grit. Um, I love your writing on who has your back. Uh, I found in my career that there were people that really supported me and there were people who didn't, and I needed to know who they were. Sometimes it's subtle. What would you tell women about, you know, people who have your back and who don't have your back? Well, you need to have those people, and I call them your rough riders. Um, You know, Teddy Roosevelt Mm -hmm. coined that phrase many years ago. Uh, But it's the folks and the people who love you, they care about you, and even though they can critique and, you know, tell you things, they do it because they want you to succeed. And they've got your back. And yeah. it's I would always know, you know, if something kind of hard happened or something bad happened, it'd be that person who would show up in my office at five o'clock in the afternoon and say, Gay, how are you doing? You know, and they would be there for me. Um, and sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's coworkers. Sometimes it's just good friends. But mm-hmm. who's there when the chips are down and really has your back? And those are the people that you do that for them, too. It's a, it's a reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And so finding those yeah. people that you can rely on when the things are really in the roughest place uh, are the most gratifying, really. And fortunately, we all yeah. have them. You just have to reach out and ask for help sometimes, too. Sometimes we think we can do it yeah. all, you know, but we have to ask for help sometimes. Yeah. And knowing who has your back and reaching out to those people, very important. But I've learned, too, that like, like you say in the book, you have to know who's not really behind you. Oh too. yes. Because there are definitely people who may you know pretend what I'm talking about. or look like they are, but they're really detractors. Look like they are. Well, yeah, they can they're seem not. like they're yeah. oh, all smiles and they're really behind you, but really they're not. And you know, they can be for right. whatever reason, they have jealous of you. They could be, you know, um, kind of mean spirited. You yes. just don't know. I mean, there's, People who don't always have your best intentions. <laughs> and so be aware mm-hmm. and you need to stay away from that or try to fix that because otherwise they'll bring you down mm-hmm. stay, or stand in your way. Yeah. Stand in your way and really, you know, sabotage, there's sabotage that goes on mm-hmm. and sometimes from other women, unfortunately, in my, yes, probably in my case, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I hate to say it, but it's, but it's true. Um, yes, it is. You talk about being assertive and uh, the quote, uh, cowgirls have earned the right to be heard. When they want to make a point, they stand up and express themselves boldly, taking on a bit of a masculine persona. I've done that. Uh, They speak their mind without fear of being judged, but they also know when to shut up. They follow up with humor, ask questions, and they're open-minded. There's a lot to unpack there, but I mean, you say always have a point of view. Don't avoid conflict. Force yourself to verbally argue out an, an issue. And that, again, gets to personal power. It does. Right? But the, the reason that you can do that is because you I always say because you know what you're talking about. And there's nothing that replaces hard work. And if you want to be good at something, you're going to have to put in the time and effort, whatever it is, you know, put in the hard work. Because if you don't, you don't really have the authority to speak on something. So I always say, mm-hmm. go in a meeting. If you know what you're talking about, don't be afraid to speak up because you have the knowledge and no one can take that away from you once you have earned it. Uh, but it takes work. It really does. You, you know, you don't just mm-hmm. get... To, from A to B without, you know, really doing your homework and research and uh, talking to people and getting your facts straight. But once you've got that, then you can be very strong and assertive and you should be because mm-hmm. you have a point of view. Right. And you, you've you developed competence and uh, in meetings, often men are, they can be, they can speak louder and they have deeper voices often. And so you just have to speak up and, you know, oftentimes we're interrupted, you, you know, you just have to say, yeah, look, uh, let me continue here uh, kindly. Uh, and, yeah, I cannot uh, tell you, you how many had, times uh, I've had women tell me that they would say something in a meeting, maybe in a softer voice. And then just a few minutes later, a man will say the exact same thing and everyone's agreeing with him <laughs> and he's boldly speaking. And you just sit back and say, hey, I just I said that. And, you know, it's it's maybe you didn't say it with as much power or with as much uh, right. conviction. And so people didn't really listen. Uh, And so you have to kind of be aware of the way that you present your 
your facts and your comments mm-hmm. too, because otherwise you can be kind of glossed over. Yeah, that's the that's the thing that comes up the most of uh, in my whole podcast. I've interviewed eighty women, and that comes up the most. That he, I said it, then nobody <laughs> paid attention to it. He said it, and everybody's listening to him. You know, so uh, yeah. One of the things you say I love, which you know, I've never been called nice either. (laughs) I have been called kind, Uh, you know, so I'll take kind, you know, if I'm called nice, you know, then I think something's wrong because that means I'm being, I'm not speaking my mind and that's just me, but I I love how you say that. I've not been called nice, but I've been called kind. Yeah. (laughs) Good stuff. Uh, Well, let's go on to chapter two. Um, you say in your book, never forget to reinvent yourself. Do it over and over again. It is never too late. And uh, you to, to be both happy and interesting. I love it. And you are doing that. Um, I'd like to talk uh, about two things. One is uh, your work at McCombs School of Business at University of Texas, Women Who Mean Business. You began the program and then you teach it. And I think you invite people in right women in to to speak so talk about that it was just a passion I had after selling my business you know and I wrote the book as you know we've talked about the book and and I really wanted women to succeed and not just rock along you know maybe even in leadership roles but not to get to that next big thing and so this was a born out of just kind of an encouraging thought of how are we going to take women from this role up to the C-suite, to the boardroom, to the next big thing so that women can have a real voice. Um, So I pitched the idea to the president of the university. He said, this goes in exec ed at McCombs Business School. And I called on one of my dear friends who is Lynn Utter, who's a a corporate leader and I'm an entrepreneur, she's corporate, and we co-teach the program. And then we also, like you said, invite in uh, some very outstanding women to either do roundtable discussions, uh, fireside chats, you know, panels and things that help to teach the whole program with us. And it's all real world. It's all women. And we bring in some men, not just women, but it's all people who are expressing exactly what's happened to them in the workplace, how they solved a problem, how they achieved, how they got through barriers. And it's not just textbook type knowledge. It is Roll up your sleeves. Right. This is what happens yeah, out there. Yeah. And we are seeing amazing yeah. success with our graduates of the program. Um, they come every other month um, because they're very busy. So I'm a working moms and, you know, they have uh, their corporate or entrepreneur roles. And so we bring them in every other month and we work them really hard for two days. And then they go off with homework and come back. And so it lasts six months and it's a wonderful, wonderful way to just ignite people into that next big step. And we're, like I said, we're already seeing results. We're seeing some great things come out of it. And we're trying to fill right now, or not trying, but we're already getting ready to fill the fourth cohort, which will start in next fall. And people are already applying for that uh, position. Wonderful. Part of your chapter two is your art. It's beautiful. Uh, talk about uh, talk about that. Uh, you had galleries, you've had events. Uh, it's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, it's all inspired by my ranch life. And um, I was an art major, like I mentioned, and parlayed that skill into the advertising business. And that's why I got into advertising, because back in the day, I had to draw. And I, I was an illustrator. I could draw. And so I got in the advertising business, and one thing led to another, of course, there. But a few years ago, I decided to just take a left turn one day into this art store and picked up canvases, paintbrushes, paint, and an easel and drug it out to the ranch and set it up outside. And I just started messing around and painting. And I was all over the place, realistic, abstract, all kinds of things. And my husband said, oh, well, that's really good that you're, you know, it's probably good for you to paint again. And it's nice that you're finally returning to your art. And he said, but don't worry about it. He said, just do it for fun. He said, you'll never make a thin dime out of this. 
And so the joke goes that when I had my first one woman show at a gallery in Chelsea in New York, uh, my first check was for over $17,000. <laughs> and of course that's half, you know, gallery takes half. And I called my husband as I was in the gallery and I said, do you think this is more than a thin dime? And he just laughed and laughed. And so I've actually been really successful selling my work. Uh, and I've been in galleries in mm. Santa Fe, Houston, here at our ranch, I have a beautiful gallery and we have shows here. Uh, and so I'm, you know, I sell direct a lot. I sell through galleries, but uh, the interesting thing is it's all, like I said, inspired from the big Texas skies. Uh, and that's what I finally decided I wanted to paint because every day is a beautiful surprise. It can be cloudy or it can be a big sunset or a sunrise or sometimes the hill country horizon. But most of my paintings are abstract and, uh, you know, they're, but they're, depending on the color of the sky and what I see. And I paint from life yeah. and uh, people seem to really uh, relate to them. It touches their spirit because it's yeah. just this big sky that we all want to see. Well, it's wonderful. And it's good to hear you're making some money from it too. I well, love it's that. fun. We know you know, I, money, I always you know. say, you know, if you're going to do something, figure out how to monetize it if you can, because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I would do it even if I didn't, but it, thrills me when I see my work installed someplace in a business. I have stuff in Mm -hmm. London. I have things all in Mexico. I have artwork all over the world, really. And uh, they send photographs of everything installed. And it just thrills me to see my work in in their final environment with the lighting right. And it really is gratifying. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Gay, it's been great. Uh, The book is great, great messages. You are living, uh, you've lived a wonderful life, successful career. I really admire you. Well, thank you, Susan. And and life continues to bring challenges as always. And, you know, as we uh, march through the days and times of life, you know, there's different things that happen with sometimes stresses with our family, you know, just health issues and certain things are going to happen. And, and we all have to kind of continue to draw on that grit that we've learned mm-hmm. along the way because every chapter of life brings in different challenges, but also different joys. And I, I think the nicest thing about getting to certain points in your career and your life is that, like I said, you're confident because you know, you know what you're doing and it, it feels really good. Yeah. Uh, and when people ask your advice or want to give you an award for something, you go, wow, I must have done something right. And uh, I appreciate mm-hmm. that time in my life and the season of my life. Well, it's a great book. And listeners, uh, get the Cowgirl Power book. Uh, we'll have it on our website. And uh, make sure you go to the Cowgirl Toolkit at the end of the book. It's, it's uh, incredible. Um, so thanks again, Gay Gaddis, for joining us on Leading She. Thank you, Susan. It's been a pleasure and very nice talking with you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders. 